Thank you, Taylor. And Zach. All right. Well, we are not going to look at Ephesians today. <laughs> uh, we're going to break from that because this whole accelerated uh, schedule now um, has changed some things. You could actually look at what we've been doing, and this is how I'm going to treat it. Uh, we, we, some of you met in August in kind of informational meeting. We had a time in October. We had a time in uh, December together talking about um, the church, its purpose, talking about gospel centrality. And then we began Ephesians. And now we're going to look at uh, the sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. For, the, for Today, baptism. Next week, the Lord's Supper. We have one more week after the Lord's Supper next week. And then the next time we meet, we will be worshiping together. So it's not, it's like two, we, two weeks, well, three more Sundays of this. Just crazy. But the way we're treating all of this time that we've been meeting together, this is like membership training. So you don't, it doesn't mean you have to become a member. You can still just check things out. But by the end of it, you're poised and ready to become a member if you so choose. Um, if you're already a member of City Press, that will transfer over. Um, but uh, anyway, so that's kind of what we're doing. And an important piece of what we do are these sacraments. And I'm going to try to demonstrate that today. And we're going to focus on baptism. But, but let's just consider for a moment, though, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. Paul is describing... God's new society. That there is the way of this world and it creates a culture, it creates a society that across the globe is surprisingly the same. But Paul says God has broken into this world by grace to the praise of His glorious grace. And He is rescuing people from all across the globe, Jew and Gentile both. And He's organizing them around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and giving them a completely different way of being in the world. So let me try to illustrate this real quick. Two important uh, images that the scriptures deal with that, that explain what Paul's talking about. Um, we in Genesis 11, we talked about this already. There's the Tower of Babel, right? It, there's a tower. It's a staircase. It leads up to the heavens. And it's built by human brawn, muscle, uh, ingenuity, technology. But it's the people of the world coming together to build their way up to heaven. And really, they're trying to build a name and... Um, get for themselves security. And the thing driving that whole effort, two things. We talked about this back in December. Fear and pride. That's the motivation. Fast forward a few chapters. Jacob has this vision. And the Hebrew is not, or the English translations are not entirely clear, but here's, here's what it is. 
It's a, it's a tower from heaven, coming from heaven. That's what the Hebrew says. Coming down from heaven. It's a stairway on a tower. And there's angels uh, descending and ascending upon it. But it comes down, it reaches all the way down to earth. And Jesus in John chapter 1 tells uh, Nathaniel, one of his disciples who he calls, he says, I tell you the truth, you're going to see heaven open up and angels descending and ascending upon the Son of, upon me, upon the Son of Man, upon me. In other words, Jesus is the, he's the way, he's the tower, he's the tower that's come down, the ladder that's come down from heaven to provide a way to, to God. And here's the driver of it. Not fear and pride, but grace and love. And what Paul is, is saying in the book of Ephesians is that grace and love is your new impetus and driver for all the activity that you do together. As you, li- as you relate, together, relate together as a community in the world, grace and love. That's your MO. It's not fear and pride. It's grace and love. Now, here's the, pro- here's the thing, though. When I think back on my own life, uh, it seems to me that actually this is usually the better motivator for me. Like, if I really want to get cracking on something, it's the fear of a, of a deadline. It's the fear of failure. That drives me better than this. If I'm honest, um, you know, think we watched a little bit of basketball yesterday. I was thinking about this. Um, Bob Knight, really good basketball coach, had successful teams. Um, but he also threw a lot of chairs, <laughs> grabbed players by the throat, uh, screamed at them like veins bubbling out of his neck and head and screaming down their throat. So he got them, he got them playing. But what were his tactics? Babel tactics, right? Fear and pride. That's what drove them. I heard, I heard a pastor this past week talk about how when he was growing up, his, his father um, was abusive and beat his older brother, but he, didn't, he, he sort of took it. Um, and so instead, his father verbally abused him and told him every day of his life, you are worthless, you will always be worthless, you will never amount to anything. He said as he calculated how, you know, all the days of his life that he heard this, he said he heard it 10,000 times growing up. And so when he got out of the home, he set out to prove his father wrong. Like, I'm not going to be a screw-up. Um, and so he did an incredible amount of achievement in a five or six years. What did it take somebody to do twice as long to do, deg- academic degrees and publishing and all that? He did it in a short time. The whip of fear and pride was cracking his, his activity. So here's the thing. Maybe that's true in your life. I don't know. But so either Paul is wrong. Grace and peace is really not a helpful motivator for human activity. Or I don't think that, but I don't know why I drew an X in there because that's not what I think. Or we just don't understand this grace and love to the degree that we ought. And I think that's, that's the answer. So here's the question. How do we deepen our understanding of God's grace and love towards us in Christ? 
And one answer, well, the catechism, the catechism that's been back there has asked this very question. And here's the answer. Question 88, if you have your Westminster. Good Presbyterian. Just have those in your, just kidding. Um, but it's, it's back there. Question 80, I'm going to read it. We don't have it on there, but I'll read it. What are the ordinary external ways Christ uses to bring us the benefits of redemption? How does Jesus make real the work of redemption towards us? And here's the answer. The ordinary external ways Christ uses to bring us the benefits of redemption are his regulations. Particularly, there's three. The word, the sacraments, and prayer. All of which are made effective for the salvation of his chosen ones. So word, sacrament, and prayer make real the salvation that God has accomplished for us. Now, and by the way, this is from Acts 2.42. Peter preaches at Pentecost. The the church, those that have been saved by the Spirit, are now gathered together and they're um, devoted to the apostles' teaching, word. They're devoted to the breaking of bread, sacrament, and the prayers, those three things. And then baptism just preceded like two verses earlier. So that's where that's coming from. So, and so by the way, King's Cross, this is what, this is all, remember I keep saying, all I'm doing is gospel, one trick pony here. I'm just going to be trying to preach the gospel all the time. And that's why, because that's the motivator for all of our activity. And so when, when, when I preach or teach or when, when others teach, Jake did a great job Wednesday night with the youth teaching, all we're doing is opening this Bible, this word, and expositing it, understand, like working through the text, because there's power in it. It's a means by which our salvation is made effective and we deepen in Christ. There's also the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and prayer. But we're going to focus on um, the, these two baptism this morning. And I should also say this. Um, this, what I'm about to present... This view of baptism is not essential to membership. I mean, well, baptism I would, is essential that, that Christians ought to be baptized. But the particular way and who gets baptized, uh, that's not a requirement for membership. Baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that would be universally agreed upon from all Christian churches. Um, but the particulars of what I'm going to present are not a requirement for membership at King's Cross Church. For eldership, they would be a requirement, but not for membership. So anyway, and by the way, let me say this as well. I grew up Baptist, um, so had a Baptist view of baptism. Was baptized at age nine. Um, have baptized numerous people in in a in the Baptist tradition, um, and and so this journey of kind of developing this understanding of, of infant baptism was a long one for me personally. Um, really, began in college and took about 12 years. When we started having kids, that's when we were like, okay, I get it. <laughs> or I'm, I'm going with it. Um, so I'm going to explain that view. And really, we're going to focus on three things. The covenant of grace, the two signs, and the meaning I'm not, and we're going to kind of do that all simultaneously. 
So those are the three topics. But first, let's, let's consider this covenant of grace. That what the scriptures present is a single covenant, a single plan of God. And that is his plan to bring about the redemption of all things in Jesus. And that's, when God called Abraham, that's what he had in mind. And in order to see that, let's look at Galatians chapter 3. We're going we're gonna to jump around quite a bit because normally we'll look at a text, as I said, expositional teaching and preaching. But every once in a while we'll look at a topic. And so that's what we're doing today, the topic's baptism. So we're not going to, we're going to jump around some. But Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 20, through 29. Let's look at it. It says, for in Christ, and this is mid-sentence, but we're going to pick it up there. Verse 26, Galatians 3. For in Christ, Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, and that's part of a lengthy section of, of Paul's argument about how in Christ we are rooted in the promises that God made to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. So God makes these promises to Abraham, and they continue to flower and blossom and flower through, through the various covenants until um, the arrival of Christ. And it's when they, they find their fulfillment. But Paul sees, in the New Testament writers, and Jesus himself, I believe, sees everything that he is doing in very much in continuity, I should go this way, in continuity with Abraham and the other in the covenants God made with his people. Okay? So there's continuity between the covenants. Now, um, that's all I'm going to say about that, about the, the covenant of grace, that there's um, continuity. Now, um, one of the features of that covenant and one of the features of God's activity in the world is that. He has a desire to include not just parents, but their household. The household. Um, you see this, for example, in, in um, Noah. Noah found favor with God. And who gets on the boat? Is it just Noah by himself? No, it's Noah and his wife. And this is uh, Genesis chapter 6, verses 17 through 18. You can see this. Um, Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives, um, all were saved. The, the, the baptismal waters of the flood, um, they all were a part of that, um, the, the whole household. Well, fast forward, not long after Noah, in the Genesis narrative, God calls Abraham and gives him these promises. And then he gives them in chapter 17, we're going to turn there, Genesis 17, God gives Abraham a sign for these promises. Genesis chapter 17. Let's turn there. 
beginning at verse 10. Genesis 17, verse 10. Okay, God says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, God is saying, you you must be partially cut so as not to be cut off from the people of God and from God himself. Right? Um, Isaac was circumcised. And then, not long after that, 12, 13, 14-ish, he was um, almost entirely cut off, wasn't he? Abraham took the knife, probably flint knife, um, and he almost took his life, were it not for the intervention of God and the angel of the Lord. Isaac made it through unscathed. But one of, the, one of the implications of this covenant of circumcision is that the, um, the individual needs to be cut. They need to be changed. The way they are naturally is not the way they ought to be. The whole thing pointed to, as, as, the, New, as the Old Testament unfolds, a circumcision of the heart. That inside you, you need to be transformed. You need to, be, you need to ha- be surgically adjusted, your soul. Because on your own, you're not as you ought to be. Um, and so, the, the, it's clear here, right? It's, it's not just Abraham who has faith already. It includes Abraham. And it's because of his faith that the sign of circumcision, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 11 points to, it's a sign and seal of the faith that Abraham had. This is what Romans 4.11 says. But it's also a sign and seal for Isaac, who has just been born. And by the way, Ishmael too. The first first circumcised uh, child of Abraham was not a covenant keeper, right? He, He abandoned the promises of God. So it wasn't it wasn't producing faith. It was a sign of what would, would hope to become, come to fruition in, in the form of faith. And for 2,000 years, the MO of the people of Israel was to, when they converted to the faith, the males to be circumcised. And when they had children, male children, they too were to be circumcised. Um... And you may think, why circumcision? That seems kind of weird. 
Why? Um, well, a couple things come to mind. One, to, to, to be circumcised was to put a mark on yourself that you identified with God. Okay? And that mark was a... Um, it was sort of a, 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 an always there reminder for the males, at least. And we'll, we'll get into why male versus, and not female. We'll get into that in a second. That in your most intimate moments, in your most private moments, you are God's. Like, don't forget that. You are God's. And not only that, all of these promises, the covenant of grace, is, is what it's looking forward Right? It's looking forward. Abraham, when he said the Lord would provide, he didn't say the Lord did provide. Abraham is looking forward to a future provision that God would provide from the seed of Abraham. And that's, what, that's the significance of, of the because the sign is looking forward to a future seed of Abraham, a future child of Abraham. And so that's why, that's, that's, that's the, why, it's, why it's circumcision, Right? And so for, for 2,000 years, the people of Israel are, do, are, are circumcising themselves when, if and when they convert. And outsiders regularly were grafted in to the people of Israel. Even in the Old Testament, would have been, males would have been circumcised. And then when they had their children, they were circumcised. So, so much so that Jesus, of course, as, as we know, was circumcised. Partially cut. But on the cross... He was circumcised. He was cut fully, right? The very thing that the, that, the, that the circumcision pointed to, kind of the judgment of the circumcision, because if you leave, you're cut off from your people. Jesus experienced that. He was cut off uh, from a people, his own people. They, they put him upon the cross. His disciples abandoned him completely. And he was cut off from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So on the cross, Jesus bore kind of the, the full circumcision, right? The full cutting of himself so that we could be brought in, right? We could be brought in. Okay, let's, uh, let's move forward a bit. In Matthew, Jesus is raised to life following this death on the cross. And the last words that he says in Matthew's gospel are the Great Commission, where he commands his disciples to go out. Matthew 28, verses 18 and following. Uh, we, you can turn there if you like, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase. He's, he says, go, all authority given to me, go therefore, making disciples, baptizing them. Okay, and then fast forward in Acts. I would like you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Let's see here. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Um, this is Peter. Um, Peter is preaching this sermon to all these Jews from all over the world. They start speaking in tongues 
which, which is to say they start speaking in the languages of the people that are present because they're from all over the world. So there's Jews speaking different languages and he's speaking in their native tongue and they uh, ask, what must we do to be saved? And Peter um, replies, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said, Oh, and look at this. This is good. Um, I, I didn't even realize this until just now. Look, now when they, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Right? The incision um, to the heart. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 39, this is important. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Peter is providing the same covenantal language that was given to Abraham, right? Circumcise you and your offspring and your children and all those foreigners in your house. In your, of course, it's expanded, right? Because it was in your house. And now it's, um, what does he say? Uh, for all who are far off, right? This thing, this gospel is on the move in a way that it was not before. So we have to um, consider these Jews who have been circumcised and have, have had this covenant, this covenant of grace has had an MO, which includes um, the uh, inclusion of children in those covenant promises. They are part of the covenant community and they get a sign as part of that. And now Peter is telling them, be baptized, you and your children. Now here's the question. Under the old covenant, the children were included and received the mark of circumcision as a sign of what would hopefully become faith. After Peter preaches at Pentecost and the new covenant arrives to these folks, is Peter now, does the new covenant exclude children? That doesn't seem, I mean, that doesn't seem ideal. Um, and the, the author of Hebrews says, well, with, in Christ, it's a new and better covenant. A new and better covenant would seem to maintain. And I think that's what Peter's saying when he says in verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Okay, you and your children. Now, I want us to consider for a moment what this promise is that Peter is, that uh, Peter's talking about. Luke has written the book of Acts. And Luke um, is also the author of, obviously, Luke's gospel. And he talks about this promise numerous times. Um, let's see. Let's look at, let's look at uh, Luke 24, 49. If you, you can turn there if you like or just listen. Luke 24, verse 40, 49 says, And behold... I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Okay? The promise of the Father. 
What is that? Well, let's look. He mentions it again in Acts chapter 1. Luke is building towards this promise. Uh, Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. This is Jesus speaking. Uh, he says, Wait for the promise of the Father. There's that language again. Which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, so when Peter says the promise is for you and your children, he's referring to the promise of the Holy Spirit, which was poured down upon them at Pentecost. Which, by the way, um, you may notice uh, if you've seen a baptism at uh, City Press, and, and many traditions do this, it's pouring, right? Because that's, that's the symbol, right? The, the, the arrival of the Spirit is the symbol. Um, when, when they were baptized by the Spirit, they weren't um, immersed in the Spirit, but the Spirit came down upon them, is, is the idea. And that's where the pouring comes from. But that's, that's not even... Uh, you know, it's interesting. The Reformers, in the 16th century, people were pretty feisty about a lot of theology, um, I mean, if you, if you were a Baptist, they would have drowned you. Or if you were a Catholic, you know, they were burning people at stake. Um, they took their theology seriously. And yet, they were so open on the mode, they didn't, care. They didn't seem to really care at all. Um, the Westminster says, uh, normal, the, the normal way to baptize is by sprinkling or pouring, but dipping is, 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 uh, is allowable or something like that, permissible. It's just interesting that the mode didn't, didn't seem to be a big deal to, to, the, to them. But that's where the pouring, the idea is the Spirit. It's a, it's a picture of the Spirit being poured and bringing spiritual birth to us in Christ. Okay. Um, let me make another comment. What, what, what Peter says here in verse 38, Be baptized. Um, that's passive, right? That baptism is, is received. Um, because, you know, in, um, in, in, in more Baptist evangelical circles, the, the emphasis is upon the um, profession of faith, the, the response of the individual to come to faith, and then is baptized as a symbol of that profession. But really, the, the, the language used in the New Testament is, the, is passive, like you are being baptized and the realities to which baptism points are all passive realities. Your sins have been washed. We didn't do that. You've been born anew in the Spirit. We didn't do that. You can't make yourself be born. You can't cleanse yourself of your own sins. Um, the, the, it's a passive reality of which it speaks. And that's why the, the reception of it's passive. Like it's received. It's done upon us. And um, actually, you know, in light of Ephesians, the, 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 the image of a, of a baby receiving um, the, the sacrament of baptism is a powerful one. Because just as Paul has said in Ephesians, we were, we were dead in our sins. We were, light, we, had no, we were as helpless as that little baby to save ourselves. And yet God came to us in that moment. And when we see a, a child or a baby be, being baptized, it's a... It's a picture of our own helpless estate when Christ came and rescued us. 
So let me, let's kind of move things forward a little bit. Um, so when you combine what Peter says here, well, let's back kind of review, I, I try to make this come together a little bit. There's a single covenant of grace. And there's a way in which that covenant operates. And it includes, the, the people that get the sign of the covenant includes um, children of the faith community. The claim is that here in Acts chapter 2, Peter is saying, children are still in for the promises for you and your children. They're still a part of it. That MO has not changed. Um, and then when you consider in the New Testament, there's numerous household, there's four, there's four household baptisms. Um, the household of Lydia is baptized. The Philippian jailer, same chapter of Acts. Um, there's a couple more. Paul talks about baptizing a household. Now, it doesn't say that they, they poured water on infants, but you take all of this together and then you say they were baptizing households just like they circumcised households in the Old Testament. Well, that certainly appears as though children would have been included in that. And then on top of that, you look at church history as early as the second century. There's clear reference to babies being baptized by origin. Tertullian questions the practice, but also indicates that it's normative across the board. Um, I believe it's the Council of Carthage. I think I have it in my notes. Yeah, in 253 in the third century, they gathered together to deal with the question of whether baptism had to happen on the eighth day, right? just like circumcision, which is interesting. Um, so they were kind of thinking of it in terms of circumcision. And so when you, when you consider all of this, when you look at just not just the New Testament, but the New Testament and the Old Testament, and how it fits into the narrative flow of Scripture, and the fact that there's some ambiguity in the New Testament on this topic, I think the ambiguity tips the scales in favor of infant baptism, because that was, that was how they operated, Right? There was no, if, if, if it changed, that would have been, I, I can't imagine, this is an argument from silence, but I can't imagine that not popping up as a major topic in the New Testament. Because it's so revolutionary to exclude the children now all of a sudden. So l l let me give you a little personal um, uh, thoughts and then we'll take some questions. Um, so when... I was first, I, I thought this, this whole idea of infant baptism was just ridiculous when I was in high school. And then I got to college and somebody gave me kind of this reformed defense of infant baptism. It doesn't save um, and, you know, um, it doesn't, doesn't make the person a believer regenerate them, uh, but it's connected to the circumstances. All of a sudden I thought, oh, okay, um, that is like somewhat, it just seems biblical to me. So then, and then as a decade went on and went through seminaries, kind of, I mean, I wasn't like thinking about this all the time, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it, begin to kind of grow persuaded. And then when we had our, started having children, that's when it was like solidified for me and Sarah both, that we wanted to have our children baptized. Um, did it save them? 
No, but it was our declaration that we, ex- we, we expect, like we, we, we long for God and we expect that God is gracious and good and he will bring them to, to faith in him. It was anticipating that. We had um, a pastor in Shawnee, Matt Wiley, who, who's a PCA pastor. Some of you guys know him. Uh, the family in their congregation just um, lost a child, uh, a young, young child, and they spoke of the comfort of the child's baptism um, that it brought and this theology that it brought them knowing that God um, has a desire to bring the children of faith into the family of God. And uh, that's, what, that's what baptism points to. Let me make one more comment on all of this and just make some comparisons between these two. Um, so there's the Old Testament covenant and the sign is circumcision. In the New Testament or the New Covenant, the sign is baptism. I've got arrows with the similarities between the two. Both represent covenant entry. Entry into the covenant community. Into, uh, into the covenant community. In circumcision, there's the shedding of blood. Right? But that's no longer the case in Baptism. Because the, that has already been, the blood has already been shed. By, which, by the way, that's the, the same is true with Passover to Lord's Supper. You, know, you notice there's no shedding of blood in the Lord's Supper. We do it every week. Um, we talk about blood in the cup, but there's no lamb. And it's, the, it's, a, it's a continuation of the Passover meal. But there's no blood in the baptism. Both are passive. Both are identifying with God and God's people. Circumcision looks forward to Jesus. Baptism looks, looks backwards, not entirely. It looks forward as well, but it looks backwards when you, uh, the, the, langu- the baptismal language of being buried with him in his death, with Christ in his death, and being raised. Um, this, has its, this roots itself in the spiritual birth. That's, it represents a spiritual birth. The, the spirit coming upon us and regenerating us. It represents that, right? It's not, it's not doing that. Um, and this is more connected to Abraham and the, and the family of, of faith. So, comparison, contrast. Um, but anyway, there, there's a lot. And like I said at the beginning, you don't have to hold this view of baptism um, in order to be a member at King's Cross Church. But it's important that you at least have some understanding of kind of what we're doing when we baptize folks. Baptize babies. Um, but when... Uh, child that has not been baptized comes to baptize them as, as believers, right? And so that's, um, that's not different than what you would experience in a Baptist church. It may be different in the mode, but even there, there's openness. Um, so that was kind of a lot. Um, we have a few minutes left. We're not going to break into small groups tonight, but um, what I would like is give you opportunity to ask any questions you might have on any of this. Any thoughts? Confusion. Is there mass confusion? I, this, was a, this, was a, I mean, this was kind of tricky for me to prepare for. I, I don't know why. <laughs> it just, I just had trouble with it. Um, and so I'm, there's probably a lot of confusion out there. Hopefully there's not. But um, anyway, any thoughts, comments, questions? Yes. Chris, yes. I grew up Church of Christ, so obviously oh, yeah. this was a real... Revolution for you. Yeah, it was. So, uh, for me, one of the, the, one of the things was, uh, you know, that 
Jesus brought the children in, and then also that they would pray, my father, and if they are excluded from the covenant, how would they be able to do that? Yeah. And, then, and like you said, if they, if they were a part of the covenant in the Old Testament, why would they start life apart from the covenant? Yeah. You know, uh, and I, I had an elder once describe it as, are they weeds in God's garden, or are they you know, seeds in God's garden. And I, I obviously didn't like the weed talk, so uh, I like the seed. So what, what would you say, though, to someone coming uh, and they say, well, this, this is just a, a Catholic baptism. How would you help them to think through uh, yeah. similarities and differences there? So what I would say is the, the language that we use, I may have mentioned this at the beginning, is that these sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And as signs, what does a sign do? It points to something. Um, a wedding ring, for example, points to uh, marital love and faithfulness, right? It doesn't make it happen. It's not that. It's just a symbol that points to that. And it can be had, and there could not be without marital love and marital faithfulness. Um, and the baptism functions in the same way. That, it's a, that as a sign, it's not the thing. It's not salvific. It's not, but it points to an inward reality. It's an outward sign that points to an inward reality, uh, which is our salvation, which is a work of the Spirit, which comes at some point. Um, in, and, and so here's another thing. The, the, the one point is this. Whether it's circumcision or baptism, God doesn't seem to be as interested in the sequencing of the sign with the reality. Um, in other words, it doesn't have to be reality, then comes sign. The two just need to be together. So you can have sign, and then the reality lags behind. And I would say, even in Baptist circles, that often happens. Um, I came to faith and was baptized at age nine. There's a part of me, though, that wonders if I did, it wasn't like regenerated and saved later in life. Because there was a transformation that happened in high school that was pretty significant. Maybe. Maybe not. But it doesn't, under this view, it doesn't really matter. It's just that the baptism happened. Um, oh, and then on, on, I'm glad you mentioned that about the... So what does it mean to be a part of the covenant community? Well, it means that our children are treated as believers, as disciples. That's what it means. So we don't, we, we treat them and are fully expectant that they're going to come to faith. And look, if you crunch the numbers, 96%, I don't know where they get these numbers. I saw this when I was preparing. 96% of Christians come from Christian families. Like, the statistics bear out what God is doing and how He operates in families. Because vast majority of Christians came from Christian families. That's not exclusive. Evangelism is obviously important, but it's a smaller percentage of those that are coming to the faith than those that grow up in a Christian home. So it seems to be how God operates in His saving of, of individuals. Um, and, I mean, whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian, you treat... As a Baptist, I mean, my parents treated, I mean, they, they taught me the faith. We prayed together. They weren't like, you can't pray because you're not a Christian yet. We're going to pray over here. You know, that's not, nobody really functions that way. Um, but the, the, the point of the covenant community is there is a sign that marks entry into that. And that sign is, is baptism, where you are 
identifying with the faith community. And prayers from the, of the faith community that you actually make that faith your own. Yeah. Uh, Christy and then Dave. So it seems like maybe there is a big difference between like in mode, right? Yeah. Because it seems like this is not probably, for lack of better words, it seems like um, a Presbyterian baptism could almost be compared to like the Baptist baby dedication mm-hmm. thing, you know, whatever. And it's the um, it's saying that the Spirit will come and indwell this person or whatever. Yeah. But the other is more symbolizing like sin being put to death uh-huh. and becoming a new person, like the point of salvation yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So I mean, like they say, well, it doesn't really matter, but kind of is symbolizing two different things. Right? Well, I would say so. I would say that's a good question. Um, I would say that the baptism, and l- let me say this too. Unlike a baby dedication, there is the belief that this is actually a means of grace. It's not saving grace, but it is, it is providing a unique benefit to that child that they would not have received apart from this faith community. But it also looks forward to that same death and burial, in, in death you know, to sin and being raised to new life in Christ. That transformation is, is highlighted as well. Um, so here's the thing about the sacraments, and this is why we do them regularly, like the Lord's Supper. They, and it's like the gospel, right? It's, so, it's like a diamond. You know, it's, not, it's not like, well, it just means this. It's so multifaceted, and you can just keep looking at it from all these different angles, and it's pointing to a whole host of realities that can be summed up in our salvation, right? The grace and love, M.O., and that's why over time... It deepens our understanding. Um, that the Spirit actually uses these things as means to nourish us in the faith and deepen our understanding of Jesus. So even though it hasn't happened in the life of that little baby, it's looking forward to when that does happen. I would say, I would say that. Dave, you had a comment. It's a bit related. Uh, I love what you said about we should treat children as though they're in, in the family of faith. Because of not to exclude them. What would you say to the folks who kind of treat children, they, they don't mistreat them, but they treat them as though they need to make this decision before anything happens. This decision is crucial. We need to have this discussion. We need to, that you say, we need to, you know, yeah. the decision is to model. What yeah. would you say, you know, with grace to those folks who are certainly what? Well, yeah. Well, I think I would. I'd kind of agree with with um, with the need for the the child to make the faith their own. So there is a decision point for the child, and the the tangible um, thing that comes along with that is admittance. To the table, to the Lord's table. So now they can begin to eat the bread and the wine with the with the rest of the church family. So that's kind of the big marker, I guess, of that is that now that they're um, a part of a part of that. But I, I think the decision language um, is not bad. I mean, you know, uh, having them have a moment where they come to faith. That's that's great. Um, 
In fact, oh, there's a number of PCA churches where there, there's actually you know, a sharing that takes place when that happens, um, similar to what you might see in like a Baptist church or evangelical church. Yeah, so does that help? Okay, Kristen. Yeah. So what you're saying is for a child who maybe was baptized as an infant, uh-huh. and then as they grow and they have an understanding of their own faith, they're at that point is for this church when they would start taking communion. Mm-hmm. And then as far as the like proclamation of that, I mean, mm-hmm. is communion that proclamation? Yeah, it depends. I mean, it depends on the church. That I was reading. So we have this thing called the Book of Church Order, which is not the most exciting read. But it just kind of tells you everything that you should do uh, as a church. How you do your communion, how you do this, how you do that. Uh, I was just reading it on on this. And it uh, it mentions, um, it suggests that a church have an opportunity for those that come to faith to share that publicly in some way. Which so, so City Press does not do that, um, but they do. Obviously, there's the moment where they're admitted to the Lord's table. Um, so you know, I, I don't I don't know the answer to what like King's Cross would do in that moment, um, but for sure the big step would be the admittance to the Lord's table to the communion. Yeah. Now my second question is, how do you explain when you know there's there's this promise of the covenant? And then maybe over time, this child has an understanding of their faith, and then over time, maybe they like fall off the you know map for whatever reason. And so, so does that mean that somehow this promise that was proclaimed on them is not actually promised to proclaimed on them? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, so um, you know the the sign, just like circumcision, it never it never meant automatic faithfulness to the covenant and its promises. Um, there were there are all numerous uh, folks that were circumcised and that were then kind of identified as covenant breakers, and um, you know in that in that instance the sign kind of became a judgment upon them that they were cut off from the people by their own and that's part of the thing is God um, you know in His sovereign wisdom gives people. He, he doesn't make them, bring them into his kingdom kicking and screaming. Um, and they can, they can abandon the faith if they so choose. But, um, you know, prayer, that's why prayers and um, the church community. I mean, this is why we want to love these kids well. The youth, what we have going on in the youth. I mean, all of these things are means by which we help prayerfully cultivate a lively faith in these kids. And these children that are here. So yeah, I don't. Does that help? Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is more of just a historical. Yeah. I, I, I was interested when you were describing. You know, they were they came to faith. Their their household was baptized. Yeah. To be kind of the norm. Yeah. You did. And then I understand your point in saying like it seems like something would be noted if suddenly there's a change in that, right? Like yeah. Getting baptized. So I'm curious, like in the in the world of the Baptist understanding of yeah. baptism, like historically speaking, in the church, when did that become a thing? It became a thing in the uh, 17th century, early 1600s. There was a guy named I think it's B. H. Carroll. 
that wrote like a trail of blood or it was a trail of, I don't know. He, he was trying to root Baptist view of baptism all the way back to the early church. And he kind of found some, but it's really hard to track that. I mean, without a doubt, the, the, the testimony of church history um, shows infant baptism taking place really early on and being normative until, and even Carol would agree with that. He, his point would be, well, but there was a little remnant, the faithful remnant of, 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 of Baptist that was, you know, sprinkled, <laughs> I'm just kidding, throughout. But, um, <laughs> jam! Um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, anyway, yeah, so, no, I mean, I, it'd be hard to argue. It, infant baptism and sprinkling seems to be normative throughout church history until the 1600s. Yeah. Any other comment? We'll take one more question, and then we'll take a break. I was going to give a comment. That yeah, please. Baptism and circumcision were uh, signs of God's faithfulness, not mm-hmm. the child or the parent's faithfulness. Like, Correct. Like it was... So as we think about these kids, it's like the promise is that God will never be unfaithful to them, you know, which is, which is an encouragement to me as I look at my kids that they've been baptized and now they may be a covenant breaker, but the, the sovereign God of the universe has said, I, my promise is for them and then for their children too. Yeah. You know, assuming, you know, so that, that's an encouragement. That is, and that's a good distinction. Uh, maybe think of it this way. The emphasis, I think, the, pa- the fact that baptism is always passive highlights it, it's, it's about God's faithfulness to us or to the baptized. And in, in Baptist set, uh, settings, the emphasis is more on my faithfulness to God. Maybe one way of distinguishing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and Chris started off by saying the Catholic view is kind of salvific in grace. Yeah. And then a lot of times the other view is memorial, mm-hmm. kind of just marking time. And you're kind of, and yeah, it's a middle. Day, yeah. Yeah. Like kind of the more Calvinist yeah. mystery. Yeah. Things yep. That matters. Mm-hmm. That, That's that exactly right. That there is something, there is heightened supernatural activity of the Spirit, just like there is at Lord's Supper. That we don't understand, we can't explain, but it is it is special, and it is not something you would want to neglect. Really, I mean that's the that's the view. You want to make this thing happen um, so that you can receive the benefit. And you can see on in Acts chapter two, you can see why um, Catholics, for example, or even Lutherans would would believe in baptismal regeneration. Because look, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's right there. How clear, how obvious is it? Well, the, the pushback on that would be, no, this is a sign. It's a sign. And it's in continuity with circumcision. And circumcision was never salvific. Um, just like baptism is not salvific in that way. So, anyway. I'm going to pray, and then we can, feel free to keep the conversation going if you want, but we're past time, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your gifts and for your spirit, its arrival, and uh, we know, you even said it's to our benefit that Jesus himself leaves earth so that your spirit can come down. And it's hard for us to believe that we are at an advantage that even the disciples didn't have when you were, 
doing your earthly ministry because we now have the Spirit. And so help us to live in step with that and pray that we would see um, a demonstration of your Spirit at work in our midst. Um, give us understanding where we, uh, of your truths. Um, help us to love one another. And we pray that even this issue of baptism would not be a divisive one, or, um, but that, that we would um, move forward in unity, although we may disagree on some of these points. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.